Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What do you do? is what an inquisitive young girl asked me years ago while we were standing beside each other, waiting for a bus. I write things in a newspaper, I said. What do you write? She probed, head cocked to the one side, eyes boring into me. I write about myself and my life and my feelings, I said, scanning the urban horizon for the number 10. I was under this bus shelter, having recently, and not for the last time, sworn off taxis for financial reasons, Once again, I found myself questioning the wisdom of this decision. You write about yourself, said the little girl, seeking further clarification, her facial expression resembling Vincent Brown's when he's about to get stuck into a particularly inept politician. And your life. And your feelings. Yes, I said. The sky darkened. Dozens of empty taxis whizzed past. Temptation on wheels, every one of them. And you get paid money for that? asked the girl, the cute little Jeremy Paxman head on her. Yes, I do. I get paid money for that, I confirmed. She said nothing. I said nothing. It started to drizzle. I smiled at her. She stared back at me. I felt I owed her something. Some kind of conclusion to this perplexing state of affairs. I said, I know. Listen, I know. It's mad and I am very, very lucky. She nodded at me. I nodded back. Then I put my hand out and hailed the nearest taxi. By way of introduction to this book, Public Displays of Emotion, I want to say it again. I know. Listen, I know. It's mad and I am very, very lucky. I get to write about myself and my life and my feelings in a newspaper every week. They don't tell you there's a job like that when you are in career guidance class in school, which is probably just as well or we'd all want one. It doesn't seem like a proper job, does it? Every week I sit down and I basically ask myself or my boyfriend or whoever is unlucky enough to be in my eyeline the following question. What's going on with me right now? How am I feeling? What's making me happy, angry, sad, giddy, annoyed? And then I start typing and it's part of my actual job and I get paid at the end of it. I know. I've been doing it for nearly 15 years now in the Irish Times Saturday magazine. In the beginning, back in 2001, they told me I only had to write three, which seemed doable, just about. Thinking they were upstanding sorts, the Irish Times, remember, I believed them. They lied. When it turned out that three columns meant, carry on indefinitely there, I go on, I had a good old think about what the column would be. Which is to say I quickly decided that it was not going to be a column full of opinions about issues of the day. Instead, I decided to write about life. My life. But through writing about my life and my struggles and sadness and joys and aspirations, it seems sometimes as though I've been writing about everyone's stuff. Well, maybe not everyone's. But there's been enough people saying, me too, when I've talked about my housework allergy or my fondness for wine or my phobia about any kind of whistling to suggest my stuff is often other people's stuff. 
It's not easy being a professional oversharer, a sensitive sap who can't keep her feelings to herself. It's a life full of swings and roundabouts. Over the years, there have been occasional Beckettian pauses. You must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. In my output, for the purposes of rest and respite, when the emotional well ran dry. My friend and former editor Patsy Murphy once threw me an epic party when I decided to quit both the weekly radio show I was doing and the column at the same time. My then nine-year-old nephew Stefan, with the genius of small children, said of me at the time, she has just lost two jobs. Why is she celebrating? My last book of columns, Pieces of Me, covered the first five years of my columising and this one has been culled from the last decade. I've chosen the ones that I like, the ones my readers told me they liked and the ones that remind me of the best and worst times in my life. I've put a good bit in here about my boyfriend's mother, Queenie, bleach enthusiast, rabbit's foot carrier, winning streak watcher, Daniel O'Donnell devotee, because there are some readers who are nothing short of obsessed with her. I've put in the one about the date night with my boyfriend, where I used a self-help checklist from the internet to see if the iceberg in our relationship was going to sink us. I've kept in the ones that got the most reaction. Emails from readers are one of the best parts of this gig, which are not necessarily the ones you might expect. For example, when I wrote about how much I love the clothes shop Cos, my email nearly broke with all the readers asking about it and sharing the Cos love. I don't yet have shares in Cos and they haven't yet made me an official brand ambassador, but let's just say I'm not ruling it out at some stage. Love you with the strength of a billion sons, Cos. Now, the handy thing about this job is that whenever anything humiliating happens, you trip on a wire in the office of the editor of the Irish Times, say, propelling yourself across the room before landing in a heap near the door, you feel bad momentarily, but seconds later you think, ah, well, it will make a good column. Similarly, when you spill a bottle of foundation over the same editor's trousers and then start to dab on said trousers with baby wipes while the whole of the features department looks on, you think, well, that's Saturday's output sorted. Swings and roundabouts, see? If people say one thing to me about the column, it is this. You are so honest. Well, to be honest with you, this honesty is not always deliberate. As anybody with a weekly column deadline will tell you, if they are being honest themselves, there are days when this highly jammy gig is hard to do. There are days when I sit staring at the screen, racked with self-doubt and giving myself a serious kicking. Sometimes it feels as though I've nothing to say, and that's when I usually say the unsayable. The stuff lurking deeper in my soul. Sometimes it's only out of desperation that I dredge it up. I talk about my battles with food, or domestic battles with my boyfriend, or the overwhelming urge I occasionally have to run away to India and join an ashram. In that desperately seeking state, some of my most potent stuff pours out and suddenly the screen of my laptop will be full of something I can only half remember writing. This is the other thing that people say to me about the column after they've told me how honest they think I am. Is there something, is there anything you would never write about? When they ask me this, I tell them the truth. Of course there is. Of course there are some things I wouldn't write about. There are plenty of things, numerous and various experiences. But it's the same one experience that always comes to my mind when anyone asks that question. And instead of being honest about the experience, I tell them, I have my secrets. And I flash what I hope is an enigmatic smile. 
In terms of shutting down this particular line of inquiry, I find it works a treat. Many times over the years, I've stopped myself writing about the experience, and every time I've asked myself why. Was I ashamed of it? No. Was I embarrassed? Not at all. Did I feel I'd done something wrong? Quite the opposite. What I had done was the right decision for me. I was stopping myself from writing about the experience because of what other people might think, which, when I thought about it, was completely against the spirit of my column. I've thought long and hard about this and now I find myself wanting to write about the thing I've never written about, this unwritten experience. It feels like the right thing to do. I know some people who love meetings so much they would spend their entire life going from one to another. These people are at their best when somebody in the room is holding on to an agenda. I am not one of those people. In general, I think there are too many meetings going on in the world and most of them go on too long. But sometimes, despite an aversion to meetings, you find yourself at an extracurricular one, a meeting that has meaning, one outside of the gatherings you are compelled to attend for work purposes. Earlier this year, I went to the Teachers Club in Parnell Square for one of the monthly meetings run by the Abortion Rights Campaign in Dublin. It was my first time at a meeting like that. The room buzzed with enthusiasm and purpose and hope. Arriving shortly before it was to start, I took one of the few remaining seats beside a pleasant-looking young man. Nervous and trying to settle myself, I decided to make small talk with this guy. But I'm not very good at small talk and instead of talking about the weather, I told him how great I thought it was that there were so many men at the meeting. Why wouldn't men be here, he asked. It's a human rights issue? There aren't usually many people at these monthly meetings, sometimes a handful or 30 on a good month. On the night I went, there were over 150 people in the packed room and the organisers were delighted with the increase in numbers, which they put down to the yes vote in the same-sex marriage referendum. It seemed some people, after witnessing firsthand how seismic change for good was possible in our country, were moved, as I had been, to turn up. Before the meeting proper started, a woman from England was invited to speak. She'd been part of the abortion campaign there for decades. She was speaking, she said, in solidarity with all of us. You will win this fight, but when you win, you will have to keep on fighting, she said, alluding to the ongoing work by pro-choice campaigners, even in countries where abortion is legal. Her confidence in our ability to change things was inspiring. It was one of the more memorable meetings I've ever attended. When thinking about writing about this experience I've never written about before, I found an article in the Irish Times archive. It was an account of a public pro-choice meeting not unlike the one I went to, except that it took place 35 years ago. In the report, the late campaigner and former Irish Times journalist Mary Holland, mother of Irish Times social affairs correspondent Kitty Holland, was quoted in response to people who said they opposed abortion on the grounds that it was un-Irish. What do they mean, these people, she asked? That the thousands of women who go to England for abortions are less Irish? Of course they aren't. They are all too Irish. Frightened, lonely, desperate women, isolated as only an Irish woman can be, who finds herself pregnant and does not want to be. At that meeting, Holland called for women who had experienced abortion to sign an open letter, being honest about their situation. She spoke about her own abortion and said she would sign such a letter. She believed the letter 
which never came to pass because at the time she was the only person willing to sign such a document, she believed it would advance decriminalisation. She was sure, she said, that one day public opinion would change. This is my version of answering Mary Holland's call for women in Ireland to sign their names to an open letter. I had an abortion and I'm glad I did. You might want to ask why I would write about it and why now, and it's a very good question for a few reasons. If you're Irish, you know what writing about this means for me, and if you're not Irish, you can probably guess what it means. Abortion is illegal in my country, and there are people who are violently opposed to this service ever being available to women in Ireland. So you don't have to be a social scientist to know that when I write about my abortion, certain people, many of whom believe themselves to be Christians, will sit down and post letters to me with the express purpose of making me feel ashamed of myself. They will send materials and scriptures and pictures to inform me how I should live my life, what I should do with my womb, and how I should feel about something that was my choice and the choice of the man who was involved. They will do all this with a view to being as unkind as possible. They will hope they hurt me. They will hope they shut me up and put me down. And when this happens, other people will say, well, what did she expect? And she brought it all on herself. And she deserves everything she gets. So before I go any further, I want to say something to those people, just in case any of them are listening. I have done nothing wrong. And you cannot hurt me. And you cannot touch me, ever. Like tens of thousands of women in Ireland, and like hundreds of thousands of women around the world, I am glad and relieved and not at all ashamed that I once had an abortion. I know that many other readers who are opposed to abortion will have a different, more nuanced, far less aggressive response and I also expect it will be difficult for some people who have followed my column over the years to hear about this part of my life. It might not sit well with them. It might even turn them off reading my column or the rest of this book. I had told my pro-choice mother about the abortion years earlier. When I told her that I planned to write about it now, she was very concerned that I would alienate people. She's supportive of me in my writing and in everything I do. I could not have written my column without her blessing over the years. But after she read a first draft of this, she said, I'm worried. I'm worried that people who like you and like your column won't like you when you tell them you had an abortion. I was upset about this at first and I didn't like the idea of censoring myself because I would risk losing readers. On the other hand, I could see where she was coming from and it was something I had to consider. I know there are some people who will now decide they don't like me anymore, who will judge me, who will think I'm a bad person and there's nothing I can do about that. Wherever you stand on the issue, I want to make it clear that I am not suggesting what I did is the right course of action for every woman who finds himself pregnant and doesn't want to be. I just passionately believe every woman in Ireland should be free to make that choice. My abortion is part of my story. It's part of who I am, but it is just one part of my life. I was divorced. I have two children. I am messy and domestically inept. I have a tendency to lose things. I like chips, probably too much. I cry easily. I had an abortion. Back to that question. Why write about it now? Well, there are more than 100,000 reasons. Since 1980, over 150,000 women have left Ireland, mostly for England, to get abortions. 
I feel a sense of solidarity with these women, a feeling that began building up many years before my own experience, a feeling that is stronger than ever now. I think it's wrong that these women were not able to access abortion in their own country. It is estimated that 12 women leave Ireland every day to get terminations in other countries. I want to stand up in solidarity with them and be counted. Like the young man at the meeting said, it's a human rights issue. I was a very late developer when it came to solidarity with women who had abortions. It took me a good while to catch on. In my defence, I was only 12 when the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution was introduced in 1983. Abortion was already illegal and had been since 1861, but this change meant that the right to life of the unborn would be equal to a mother's right to life. I look back now to try and figure out what I was at when I was 12. I see that Red Red Wine by UB40 was number one when the referendum was passed. I remember every word of that song, but I don't remember anything about the referendum. By the age of 20, I was living in a squat in Birmingham, England, and not at all engaged with the X case, where a 14-year-old girl who had been raped and was suicidal was dragged through the courts to get access to an abortion here. They eventually ruled that she could have one as her life was threatened. The girl went on to have a miscarriage. It wasn't until I was in my 20s and married and back in Ireland that I started to understand and form a definite view on abortion. I was pro-choice. At that point, I didn't know what it would feel like to be pregnant when you didn't want to be. I just knew I could never judge another woman for her choice. I trusted that the woman in that situation would make the right choice for her. I knew that my approval or my disapproval should have nothing to do with that choice. Gradually, people, a small number of people I know, began to confide in me about their abortions, which they had accessed for many different reasons. I became much more aware of all the Irish women who, in the story we tell ourselves about abortion, are little more than numbers and statistics and flight numbers and ferry tickets, as opposed to people with lives and choices and stories. Around 15 years ago, when I was in my late 20s, I became one of those women when I got pregnant and didn't want to be. Since then, there have been more alphabet women, A, B, C and D. More recently, in 2012, there was a pregnant Indian woman, Savita Halapavanar, who had asked for a termination but who died in a Galway hospital of septicemia. Her story, first reported on by Kitty Holland in the Irish Times, went around the world. In 2013, the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill came into force, allowing for doctors to decide if there is a threat to the life of the woman due to physical illness or through risk of suicide. Only if these conditions are proven can an abortion take place. Having an abortion is still a crime in this country, except in these very exceptional circumstances. I live in a country where our sisters and our mothers, our daughters and our aunts are made to leave when they get pregnant and they don't want to be pregnant. Where women who are given a diagnosis of fatal fetal abnormality must travel for their terminations, a uniquely cruel ordeal. In the past 20 years, I began to understand instinctively the injustice of all these women having to go. I started to be conscious of all the women who've been told to shut up, to be ashamed, to keep their heads down, to keep shtum, to say nothing. Over the years, I grew increasingly concerned on their behalf and then on my own behalf, and I don't want to censor myself anymore. It happened before I started writing my column. It happened before I met the man who had become the father of my children. It happened after my previous relationship, a five-year marriage, had broken up. I was flailing around in self-loathing mode. I was going out too much, drinking too much. It happened one night. I should have been more careful. He should have been more careful. 
I didn't think it would ever happen to me, and then it did. I took a pregnancy test. It gave me the wrong answer, the one I didn't want to see. I was not in a relationship. I did not want a baby, but I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew my own mind. I knew what was good for me. Even if my country doesn't think women know their own minds or think we know what is best for ourselves, we trust ourselves, even if that trust is not reciprocated by the laws of the land. I rang my friend, an older woman, someone I knew I could count on for support. I went to a counselling meeting where I pretended to weigh up all my options when, of course, there was only one option. For me. There was only one option. Not for you or for anybody else because I can't speak for anyone else. But for me, this was the right thing to do. I knew what had to happen next. Meeting the man in a cafe to explain how much going to England would cost, including the flights and a night in a hotel... We divvied up the damage between us. Again, I was lucky. Think of the women scrabbling the money together on their own, taking loans out, afraid to tell the person who was 50% responsible, or when they do tell them, being told to sort it out themselves, borrowing money, pretending it's for something else, money they will spend years paying back. In my case, he was a civilised, respectable, accountable person. He didn't want a baby either. He wasn't ready emotionally or psychologically or financially for a baby either. We agreed on that. He gave me the cash, all those notes, and I took the thick wad over the table in Bewley's in Westmoreland Street as though it were an illegal transaction, and in a way it was. The Eighth Amendment makes criminals of women in Ireland and packs us off to commit our crimes in other countries. I didn't want to go on my own and my friend said she would come. I booked the clinic. There was no faltering, no indecision. Very soon afterwards, I started reading Agatha Christie novels. I didn't question this at the time. When I look back now, that is mostly what I remember, my addiction to Agatha Christie. I had to read them all as though it were some kind of literary endurance test. I look back on this time and I think of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd and Murder on the Nile and A Murder is Announced. All that murder. I wonder why I was drawn to those. Well, I don't wonder, actually. If you grow up in a country where the loudest narrative is that women who have abortions are murderers, then it kind of makes sense. But I am not a murderer, and if you had an abortion, neither are you. Unless everyone who takes the morning after pill is a murderer... And I'll give you a hint, they are not. In the waiting room of the clinic, I sat flicking through another murder mystery, not realising how it might look to the other women there, women of all ages. I put the last Agatha Christie in my bag when they called my name, and I haven't picked one up since. Psychologically, the fact that you have to plan a secret trip and lie about where you are going, oh, just a little trip to London to catch some shows, you know, it's strange, especially if you're not used to lying. Maybe because of this, I wanted to transport myself somewhere else until it was all over. So I travelled to the villages and vicarages and parlours of Agatha Christie. And when my pregnancy was over, so was my Agatha Christie odyssey. My friend was at a conference in London at the same time. We timed it that way. When I told her I was going to write about my abortion, she said she was concerned for me, worried as my mother was about the repercussions of coming out. She also said she understood why I wanted to write about it. 
I told her that if she didn't mind, I'd like to include something on how it felt for her at the time, because it is not something we ever talk about now. It is in the past. But in a way, it is her story too, and the story of tens of thousands of people who have travelled with Irish women over the decades. So I asked her what she remembered. She sent me an email. I remember you telling me how it was a night that meant nothing, how you weren't ready to be a mother, how you didn't want it, how you couldn't even sort yourself out, never mind someone else. I tried to be neutral and would have supported you whichever way it went. I didn't want you to feel that I would judge you and I think you were able to make the decision because you knew that was the case. I also felt a heavy responsibility. Should I or should I not point you in one direction or another? You are younger than me. I have my own views. You knew you could tell me the story. You knew I would be calm. I felt the responsibility of a big question that only you could answer. When you had made the decision, it was then logistics for both of us. Organising the trip took over from thinking. How could I make it easier for you? How could I be there with you? I knew I had to be there. I'll never forget leaving you at the clinic in a black cab with steamed up windows. You were terrified, but resolute and so brave. One hug... And then I watched you walk down the path and I felt sick, like a coward, questioning what kind of friend was I? My meeting went by like I was in a dream. When I picked you up, you were relieved that it was over. We went back to my hotel and you went to bed. You recovered and time passed. You never showed that you looked back in any way, resolute always. I got pregnant very soon afterwards. We shared that experience instead. I am sorry I had to put my friend through that. I am not sorry I had an abortion. I remember the black cab and the steamed up windows and I remember feeling resolute and so certain of what I was doing. I remember feeling minded and cared for. I remember that feeling of being with my friend and her making sure I was okay and I was okay. I was more than that. I was relieved. I went to sleep that night unburdened. It was over. My life could carry on the way it was before. I was going to try to be more careful in future and I was more careful. This is not a sad story. I am lucky. I was an employed woman who had the money to go to England when I got pregnant at a time when I didn't want to have a baby. The people I feel sorry for are all the other Irish women who didn't and who don't have a spare thousand euro or more to do this but would have chosen and would choose to travel for an abortion if only they had that choice. Think of the woman who can't travel because she can't afford to. Think of asylum seekers or undocumented women who have no way of leaving the country. Think of women being abused by their partners who can barely leave their homes, never mind get on a plane. Think of the single mothers and other mothers who can't go because there is nobody to look after their children. Our abortion laws punish women in this country for getting pregnant. The laws of our land say, even if you are too young to have a baby... Even if you were raped, even if you can't afford one, even if the fetus will not live outside the womb, even if it was your father or your brother who got you pregnant, even if psychologically or financially you are just not ready to bring a new life into the world, you simply must. You must have a baby, no matter how much you don't want to, is what our laws say. We are going to make you do it. You have no choice unless you can prove to us irrefutably that having a baby has the potential to kill you or make you want to kill yourself. But of course, that's not the whole story. If you have money, 
and a valid passport, then yes, you can head off and do that thing, is what our laws say. Because since the 1992 referendum, we have the right to information about abortion and the right to travel to a foreign country for an abortion. Off you pop, our laws say. You'll go through it alone, though, mind you, in a country that is not yours, and you'll go back afterwards to a B&B or a hotel room, and not to the comfort of your own bed. And this is your punishment for getting pregnant. Bold girl. Bad woman. And women in poverty, and women who cannot travel, are punished most of all. When I did get pregnant years later, I knew I was ready. I knew what was right for me at that time was to carry on with the pregnancy to a hopefully happy conclusion. But having a baby that first time would not have been best for me. I have not had one scrap of regret or shame about what I did. Nobody, and I mean nobody, wakes up one day and thinks, Great, I can't wait. This is the day I have an abortion. But it is a choice many of us make, and it's the right choice for many of us. Again, I can only speak for myself. People take the pill and the morning after pill and they use condoms in order to exercise their reproductive rights, in order to control whether or not they get pregnant or make a woman pregnant. When I became pregnant, I had to make a decision about having a child or not having a child at that time. Individuals and couples make these decisions every day. It is our right as human beings in the world. So why am I writing this? Because I want to be a part, however small, of the campaign to change abortion legislation in this country. Because if one of my daughters ever comes to me and says they are pregnant when they don't want to be, I don't want them to have to get on a boat or a train or a plane. I want to mind them at home, where I can put my arms around them and give them a hot water bottle. I want to support and love and care for them every step of the way. I want to respect their choice. I want them to have a choice. Because most countries in Europe give women that choice, just not the one in which I live. Did you have an abortion? You probably know this already, but just in case, if you can look into your heart and that decision feels like it was the right one, you did not do anything wrong. You made the right choice. Even if the state does not trust in you to make the right decision for yourself, I do And you did. I know there are some women who regret their decision to have abortions and I understand that must be a terrible pain to carry in their lives. But I also know it has been the right choice for thousands upon thousands of women in Ireland who I hope will not be silenced any longer. Who will, when the time comes, say, me too. Even though that's one of the most difficult me too's an Irish woman can utter who, as the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment gathers pace, will tell their families and close friends about how their terminations were a relief and how they would do it again given the same circumstances. They can already do so anonymously. Already lots of Irish women have written their abortion stories on shareyourabortionstory.tumblr.com and to read them is to see that the women who have abortions are every kind of Irish woman with over 100,000 different stories and situations. Every woman, the unemployed and the employed, women who already have children and those who don't, teachers and doctors, 
TDs and factory workers, teenagers and 30-somethings, writers and TV presenters, students and immigrants, authors and barristers. They are our mothers and our sisters, our daughters and our wives, and let's not forget the men. Seriously, let's not. They are the people in many cases who also wanted their partners to have abortions. They are our brothers and fathers, our sons and our husbands. They are not criminals. We are not criminals. I know not everyone who reads this will agree, but this is what I fervently believe. Women in Ireland who need abortions should be allowed to have them in Ireland soon. As soon as possible, please. So there it is. The experience... I've never spoken or written about, and now I have. It was obviously a difficult emotional time, but it's one I can recount with a clear, calm head on me now because of how certain I am that I did the right thing. I can tell you honestly that the only time I ever think about my abortion is when somebody asks me, is there something, anything, you would never write about? I understand and I respect the fact that abortion is not something any woman ever wants to shout about, It's deeply private and personal. I don't know if I'd ever have written about this experience if abortion were available to all women in this country who need it. Despite the recent legislation prompted by Savita's death, abortion is not available in Ireland in any meaningful sense and so I feel compelled to add my voice and my experience to the debate. I hope it will be helpful in some way to others who have been through similar experiences. There is a squeamishness about women and their pregnancies and their birthing experiences at the best of times. I know many women who have had miscarriages who feel they can't talk about that either. And as I write this, in Northern Ireland, 215 brave people, 200 women and 15 men, have signed a letter to the Public Prosecution Service admitting that they have either taken abortion pills themselves or helped other women obtain or use them. The letter was in response to a case where a mother was being prosecuted for supplying such pills to her daughter. I am grateful to these people for risking not just arrest, but society's disapproval to fight for women's reproductive rights. I stand beside them now. I am sorry if, as my mother suspected might happen, some of you don't like me or my column anymore because I have written about this. Sometimes in life, we have to step up. In my life, this is one of those times. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.